When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you ever get a, this is the first day of the rest of your life speech? I don't know that I've ever gotten one of those speeches directly, but certainly very familiar with the the sort of the platitude of it. Yeah. Yeah. And how about this? Have you ever heard of Synanon? No. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, you know, because whenever I hear a, a, a sentence like this, you know, a, a thing that that's familiar right away from the, the time you hear it, um, I always wonder what the origin of that is. And so I went and looked at this and I expected it to be something, you know, a lot older, I guess, you know, something from from history somewhere. And it's actually from this guy. His name's Charles Dietrich. Diedrich. Um, he goes by Chuck. So Chuck Diedrich. And he is a guy that was behind this organization called Synanon, which was um, it was kind of created. It was kind of grassroots. It was it was all about him. But he he just sort of came up with this idea for a real problem that existed. And that was uh, drug addiction. Like he was a drunk. Um, he had he had gotten sober through Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the traditional 12 steps. And um, they didn't they didn't like people who were addicted to drugs at that time in that organization, there was a little bit of worry, I guess, that it might muddy their message, you know, that, that, that it was really just for alcoholics. So he decided that he wanted to start this, this other thing. And, um, it all kind of, it, it's, it's a super interesting story and I, I can't go down the whole rabbit hole, I guess, that I went down over the last couple of days reading about it. Um, but it all came from, he, you know, after he had gotten sober and he was in AA, he, he went to a, a study and he did it for money because he was kind of broke and he was given L, uh, LSD as a as an, uh, treatment for alcoholism. And um, he had this really profound experience and, and it sort of put him on a path, I guess you could say. And so he created this thing and um, it was really, it just started out in his apartment. They moved to different places over time in California and it became, it got pretty big. And, um, I guess it's, it's one of the pioneer drug rehab programs, like the ones we think of now, it's kind of like the, one of the, one of the major, uh, forerunners of that, that system. And, um, it, it kind of turned, it, it, it kind of went from being like this, this one place where people came and they would come and they would, they would dry out, you know, they would, would get off of the drug and then they would, um, join this community. And in, initially it was, you would go there, you would stay for a year or a couple of years or whatever, and then you would graduate. And, you know, through this process, you would be, become a, a non-addict, I guess it kind of centered around this, this, this kind of um, thing that he called the game. And it was his own, his own, um, his own method of, of getting to the bottom of that. Have you ever heard of any of this kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, starting to sound a little like a uh, cultish. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely gets there. <laughs> it definitely gets there for sure. And, um, you know, it what 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 stood out to me and why I decided to talk about this right now was because I had read about this process, th- this game, the Synanon game in relation to something unrelated. It was what well, seems unrelated to me whenever I, I thought about it. There, you know, there's 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 a thing in in the in the U.S. now that that's been around for a couple of decades. That's pretty popular, and it's it's about um, they're like wilderness camps for 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 delinquents. You know, like if you're a parent and you're really worried about your kid, and uh, you know that their their behavior and you can't sort of get it under control. There there are people that will come in and take them away and uh, send them to these camps in the in the wilderness until they can fix them and send them back, you know, essentially. And, um, they use this same kind of what I, I don't know what else to call it besides like, uh, attack therapy. You know, they, you, you, break the person down. That's sort of the, that's sort of the process. So, you know, the, this, this whole thing, um, is, is, is kind of embedded in, in a lot of stuff that's out there now is that's, that's, you know, related to rehab. But like you mentioned, uh, it did get kind of cultish in its original uh, form. It, it was, uh, you know, it went from being a, a place where you could go and you could get help to a community that people who weren't even addicts could pay to be a member of, you know, to kind of get into this communal living and get the, you know, get that um, that therapy. You know, if you, I kind of have to put air quotes around it. I, I, I really don't like the idea of the way that sounds. Um, but, you know, and then as things got weird, uh, it, it became like, you know, a psychological program, I guess is what they thought it was. And whenever that started to come under, um, you know, people started to try to break it apart or try to figure out what was going on there. They became a religion. And Mm -hmm. then it all kind of, it all kind of fell apart in the nineties. Um, when some of the members decided to, there was a lawyer who was going and trying to get people out of this place because their, their families were saying like, look, you know, our, our kids have been abducted by a cult basically, and they won't let us talk to them. They won't let them leave. You know, they, this guy went after some of these family members and, and he won a case. And so they, they, the, his followers, uh, Chuck Diedrich's followers, took a, a a four foot long rattlesnake and they removed the rattle so it would be silent and they put it in a uh, they put it in his mailbox so when he reached his hand in there he got bit and he almost died and from there wow. things just just evolved and uh, you know it doesn't really exist in that name so much anymore I think there's still one in Germany that, that carries that name. But I mean, it, you know, a lot of the people who went through there, they're still out there. They, they, they went and started their own places and there's a lot of far reaching sort of ripple effects that came out of this one guy. Like he, he had an idea, you know, he had this idea that was actually something that solved the problem for him personally, you know, in a, in a crisis situation. But then it also, happened to be useful to people in the community. I mean, they were raising a lot of money. Um, people were donating a lot of money to try to get it going. And um, it was pretty big. But then, you know, the moral of the story is that even though he started out with these great intentions, he got a taste for power. And he basically became 
the leader of these people's lives, you know, and uh, it's a little bit different, but I mean, he, things devolved from there, right? He, he became, uh, you know, a cult, cult leader and um, it, it's a little bit different, but that whole idea of, you know, the getting, having this really, really essential need and something that you make a decision that you know, goes down and, and, and creates this situation. And then you get that taste for power, right? You know, it's kind of like what we see happen with Walt. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. What are you doing? This is the first day of the rest of your life, but what kind of life will it be, huh? Will it be a life of, of fear, of, oh, no, 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 I can't do this, of never once believing in yourself? Welcome to Growth Decay Transformation, a Breaking Bad rewatch podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Courtney. And we're joined by producer Talitha. Today we're going to be talking about the season one finale, a no rough stuff type deal, which borrows a line from the Coen Brothers 1996 film Fargo. It's also the only season finale to not be written by Vince Gilligan. There's one other exception, which is the mid-season finale of season five, um, but that's a little bit of a different situation. And Courtney, could you give us a nice little synopsis about what happens in this episode? Of course. So this episode begins at J.P. Wynn with a briefing on the stolen lab equipment as uh, APD vows to continue their search for the person responsible for stealing the equipment from Walt's lab. Uh, Walt starts feeling Skylar up under the table. They a little frisky. Uh, yeah. They then um, go outside and they rock that Aztec in the school parking lot. Yeah. Um, and... We see that Jesse gets out of the hospital and he's put his house up for sale. So he's recovering in the, the RV and uh, they get back to cooking, but they're only able to produce half a pound. And Tuco, this obviously upsets Tuco and he reprimands them for wasting his time to which Walt responds by doing what he promises him four pounds. Yeah. So, you know, production problems. He, he hasn't considered that they need pseudo. And uh, meanwhile, Skylar has her baby shower. And she is gifted a white gold baby tiara by Marie. So, of course, she wants to go and return that because who needs a white gold baby tiara? And when you know, she goes we, to the... Can we, can we interrupt <laughs> this? Can I interrupt you for a second? Like, when does a baby wear the tiara? I guess for her her debut. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this is something that's always her... stood out to me. Like, I guess for a, for a photo, right? I mean, yeah, it's not something that at, you like, would... You wear maybe in the crib some... or no 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 it would be like maybe at like a christening or something or like a first birthday I don't know like some special event I guess yeah I I I can't really see the need for it maybe maybe someone out there has bought a tiara for their baby and they could they yeah. could let us know <laughs> when when do you use a baby tiara um, uh -huh. okay so yeah so uh, she of course wants to return this tiara and she is accused of stealing. Uh, the tiara, and she feigns labor to get out of that situation. So with not enough pseudo to make good on their promise to Tuco, Walt and Jesse decide that they're going to go to a P2P cook and they need to steal some methylamine in order to do that. So Walt, Walt lies to Skylar, which he's getting better at doing, um, and tells her that he's going to be uh, going to a sweat lodge 
and uh, instead heads out to the desert to the desert with Jesse to to cook. And when they meet up with Tuco in the junkyard at the end, Tuco samples some of the blue stuff. And uh, I think at this point in the series, we're learning uh, the effect that uh, meth has on Tuco. And poor Nodos makes the grave mistake of daring to speak for him. Bad choice. So, yeah, definitely a bad choice. A very rough stuff type deal goes down. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Pete, what did, what did you think about this one? <clears throat> I mean, I guess the thing about this episode on rewatch is that it looks and feels like exactly what what it is. Uh, it's a regular episode of a season that was cut short because of the, of the writer's strike, which um, we can get into that in a little bit. But it was modified slightly to turn it into a finale, but it doesn't it doesn't come off as one. Really, I think um, there are some real gems in the dialogue and some foundational character stuff that happens. And it's just sort of like following up on the last episode's confrontation at Tuco's office. It feels like it's a bit of a step back to set up the next part of the story rather than a climax, like a natural ending to this first season. Um, but still, it's a solid episode. The inclusion of him wanting all the money in the situation where he can't even deliver what he promised this time and then paying that off by the end of the episode shows just how dangerous Tuco is and how the decisions they make have consequences. That all works well and it leaves me or leaves the, the viewer wanting more. And I think that's pretty effective. And, you know, plus it this is the first time we see the blue meth and the pork pie hat. So there's a lot of there's a lot that's good here. Um, and I know both of us, we we watch this um not week to week in the first season. So we didn't really have that experience of like having to wait for the next season to come out or whatever. But I think, yeah, I think that you could, you could say that it, it they, they did what they could do with a, a unique situation. And like I said, we can talk about the strike and, and some of the, the, the effects that come from that later, but it probably ended up being good for the show in the long run. So what about you? What did you think? Yeah, I, I largely agree with with uh, your impressions as well. So um, this was a decent finale um, for something that wasn't intended to be a finale because it, it ends something on like a, a high note for them. They're finally starting to make some progress and things are really starting to look up for them after we've just seen like, you know, everything that they've gone through to get to this point. There's there's finally this opportunity for, for growth for to actually, you know, get this thing off the ground and, and be successful at it. Uh, I think, though, the, the most interesting parts of this episode are the, the glimpses that we get into uh, how some of the other characters think about crime and how all of them are willing to break the law to some degree. And the cliffhanger at the end, if you can even call it that, I think just really reinforces what we already know. Tuco is highly unstable and unpredictable. And when when you add meth into that equation, um, he becomes extremely volatile, right? So the title as a nod to Fargo, as, as you noted, I think casts Walt into the same role as the character that William H. Macy plays, um, Jerry Lundegaard. Uh, who's this very naive middle-class family man who decides to break bad. And they, they both think that they can control the situation, that they can enter into this life of crime, or maybe they don't even think of it as entering into a life of crime. They're just going to have this little foray into crime. Like, they're going to be able to keep their neat little tidy life separate. 
Um, mm-hmm. And there won't be any violence or fallout from it, right? So Walt's entering into this business relationship with Tuco, knowing full well what he is capable of, you know, what he did to Jesse. Um, but yeah, he still somehow thinks it's going to be okay. And it's he, you know, leaves me scratching my head a little bit. Like if, if you play with matches, you're going to get burned, right? Yeah. And yeah. And I, I, I do like the, uh, the comparison with uh, Jerry from, from Fargo. Um, because does intention matter really? Uh, or is that just something that we tell ourselves, you know, because the whole idea of a no rough stuff type deal, I mean, does he think that people go out and order the rough stuff type deal? You know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because it, 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 it pulls together a lot of the ideas of, of what's happening here. And, you know, and you just touched on some of them and, and, you know, Jesse does, uh, he kind of points this out later is, you know, they're not criminals. They don't really understand what's necessary. They just have a problem that they're trying to solve and they want to use this particular, particular route. But it, that, I guess, the, I guess the, the question then is, as we look at things in the way that they, they make their decisions, does, does that imply that they believe that, you know, criminals are, are doing things in a way that, that, uh, you know, is, is somehow disconnected? I guess, yeah, just to bring it back to that, does the intention matter? Does that really matter? Well, I think this is something that that the show explores really well, this universe explores and like the biases and preconceptions that people have. Um, We talked a little bit about this already with like Hank and like some of the prejudices that he holds. Um, Mm -hmm. But there it seems to be somewhat like a a universal belief that is shared by people like Walt, like um, like Jerry, who's played by William H. Macy in in Fargo, that a criminal has a a certain look and they behave a certain way. And Mm -hmm. the the scene that you're referencing later with Jesse is when they're in the junkyard. That was Walt's choice to meet in a junkyard to do this deal with Tuco. And Jesse's like, couldn't we meet at like Taco Cabeza or the mall or something? And I love how nobody ever gets uh, shot at Taco Cabeza. Yeah. Yeah. And um. And and when Tuco arrives, he has the same question, like, was the mall closed or something? So yeah. um, kind kind of like calling calling out this like absurd idea of, of meeting there. So like Walt has this this idea of what what a criminal looks like. And that's one of the things I, that really, as I was saying, really stood out to me in, in this episode is like how each of these characters think about crime, because you see a lot of moralizing happen happen throughout the the um the series but also um with with characters like like specifically hank and marie and even skylar and walt like their ideas of like what is legal what is illegal and Mm -hmm. i think that's something that this episode explores really well but um yeah it's it's most obvious i think perhaps with with walt but um this this idea of of where that line is between legal and illegal or um what how does hank phrase it um when he's holding the Cuban cigar, like the the forbidden fruits, and certainly um, Skyler, when they're having sex in in the back of the Aztec at the beginning of the episode, you know she's willing to break the law a little bit, and she's like, "Why was it so damn good?" And he said, "Because it was, it was illegal, illegal, right?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't forget your pants. We'll be right back after this short break. Here are the weekly highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Apple TV is releasing a new series based on Blake Crouch's novel, Dark Matter. Aaron and I are big fans of his work, so we're picking up the new show on day one. Join us this Wednesday for the preview podcast. 
The Shogun Limited series might be over, but that doesn't mean our Shogun coverage has to end. We've got the wrap-up podcast releasing this Tuesday, where we'll consider all your feedback and final thoughts on the series. And because we like the show so much, we decided to go all the way back to 1980 to cover the first TV adaptation of the novel. Do what you can to find the copy and join us this Thursday for the first of our four-part podcast on the 1980s Shogun miniseries. And finally, the latest first-run movie, The Fall Guy, features Emily Blunt and Ryan Gosling. He's a stuntman tasked with finding the star of his ex-girlfriend's movie when he suddenly goes missing. Is it a rom-com? Yes. Does that mean I'll automatically hate it? Not if the trailer lives up to its promise. Join us for the podcast on Bald Move Pulp this Thursday night. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked a question. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. The first two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV Plus, and we'll have a pair of podcasts quantumly linked ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Fire up the RV. We're back with more growth, decay, and transformation. Yeah, and there's a pretty there's a pretty direct line through the entire episode that follows that. Um, like you said, that that whole idea of sometimes forbidden fruit tastes the best. That's okay for a guy like Hank, you know, the, because you know he he sees himself as someone who who's doing more good than than bad. That he's on the right side of things. That he is the the kind of person that. You should aspire to be. And so, you know, a little bit of forbidden fruit. Who's that? Who's that hurting? You know, what is that? What, what's the what's the downside of that? On the other hand, these other people, these criminals, these people that are, you know, in this different category uh, that 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 aren't they, you know, somehow they're not able to enjoy that forbidden fruit in the same way. It's going to have a different effect on them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, when I, when I was talking about like this universal idea, I think what I was really trying to say is like the the archetype, right? Like the archetype mm-hmm. of of what a criminal is and how how they behave and how tightly so many of these characters cling to those ideas and fail to see like their own um complicity in crime, right? Like they cannot think of themselves as criminals. And that's something we, we see Walt wrestle with um, throughout the series. Uh, I know I'm, I'm jumping way ahead into the future, but there's this one scene with, with Walt and, and Jesse when Jesse's sort of come to terms with what they've done. And he says, you know, I'm the bad guy. And like Walt can, just can still not reconcile like that idea of himself as, as being a criminal with you know what what they've done and neither can other people right because in the very beginning they're talking about all you know there's all these uh you know parents at this meeting in the school and they're all talking about like the the horrors of like how are we going to to fix this you know bad stuff is happening at the school it's all out of their control there's these evil forces at play or whatever and he's sitting right there yeah. Walt sitting sitting right there and nobody is like looking into him as a, a potential um you know 
suspect. And, and of course that's the reason why he gets away with what he gets away with for so long, because he doesn't, he doesn't fit into that category. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So again, like these, these ideas that people hold on to, we've already spoken a lot about uh, how, how Hank specifically perceives Walt and why it takes him so long to really figure it out because he just, yeah, it's, it's not even on his, like within his realm of like possibilities that, that it could be someone like Walt. And um, speaking of that scene, right. Um, watching that scene again and watching it closely. And, and this is something I mentioned to you off air, uh, you know, rewatching this, this episode uh, again, and I've seen it several times, but, studying it closely to be able to talk about it, you know, for the podcast. Um, I was really repulsed by that scene and repulsed by by Walt in a way that I don't know that I was previously this early into the series, certainly by the end of the series, yes. But um I don't know. I don't know if it was just because I'm I'm just I know where it's going or or looking at how like grotesque it is. And thinking again because of our conversation last week about poor Hugo, right? And like that's mm-hmm. that's um they're talking about Hugo as he's like getting like turned on as he's filling up Skylar and one of the guys in the in the meeting mentions like didn't we catch the guy and et cetera, et cetera. And like I don't know, it's just that that Walt is capable of being aroused at that moment. Um it's kind of creepy, right? And yeah, and I wanted to to ask you this question because um, it's something that because right after I think it's the scene right after that they go to the doctor. Doctor Del Cavoli is the next cut, mm-hmm. and um, he uh, they're talking about like Skeller's asking about holistic medicine, Eastern medicine, stuff like that. If there's any benefit, and he said if it offers a you know my my patients a positive outlook. You know, I'm all for it because a positive outlook can be very healing. And I was thinking about that in context of like where Walt is finding his joy, you know, sort like he's turned on, he's more frisky and crime to him is an aphrodisiac. And this is something that if you watch Better Call Saul, you also see for Skylar, uh, not Skylar, for Kim and for Jimmy, mm-hmm. you know, Breaking Bad in, in their own way is also, you know, um, an aphrodisiac. They feel empowered or, or turned on by it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I was wondering, do you think that he has a positive outlook? Like, would you frame it in that way? Like being able to get away with with what he's getting away with? Is that where he is finding his his joy? Is that the po- positive outlook that actually helps him, you know, to to heal? Yeah, I think that what from what we know about him, and if we only think about what we know about him going into this episode. I think it, it it sort of leans in the direction of him being validated for being smarter than everyone else kind of thing. Like, you know, if you think about like where he was and, and, and where his, uh, his setbacks and his re- regrets are is that he didn't really make something out of himself. He, he, he ended up being the teacher instead. I think that probably the thing that, that would make him the most satisfied is that, that, kind of pulling shit off and then being like, yeah, that this, this is, this is shows that I am actually the smartest person in the room kind of thing. And, and I think there's a little bit of that in the way this plays out. Cause when you were talking about, um, just kind of how, how gross it is, um, and, and how it didn't really hit that way the first time. And the first, I guess, you know, when you first are watching this, you're thinking, Oh wow, you know, Walt Walt's getting a little bit crazy. You know, that's fun. Um, 
but yeah, when you put everything together, he he can't be bothered to hear about this guy that just last week he was he was feeling bad about, you know, that this stuff happened to Hugo. At this point, it's just like I can't really even, uh, you know, I'm not even really I can't even pay attention to this. What's happening here? It's all kind of beneath me. And I think like he's I think that that is there him getting away with it is 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 turning him on and and that that definitely feeds right into him saying the reason why she thought it was so good is because it's illegal but i hadn't picked up on that before so i guess maybe that is something that they're they're introducing here um alongside the idea that everybody commits crimes even the people who consider themselves to be above it all you know and um, they all look at things in different ways that that just make it so whatever they're doing is okay. Yeah, and and I think it also, but I, I guess what I was thinking in terms of is like, so like, yes, Walt is getting off on all of this for all the things you just you just laid out. So um, he's getting away with things. He's feeling validated and powerful, but. Um, it's not going to be enough for him, right? Like he's going to eventually no. need more and more and more and more. And he's going to want recognition, right? So like certainly like um, far further down into the into the story when he is, uh, you know, he, he basically puts Hank back onto investigating um, who Heisenberg is after he thinks yeah. it might be Gail Bedecker, right? Like because he can't stand someone else getting credit for his, um, his work. And we also see that happen when... Um, when they set when Saul sets up the the zombie accounts to donate to Junior's uh, PayPal or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, we see also like the idea of him not getting credit is really like ugh, for him. I think it does. It ties into to what we started off this this part with and about the idea of does intention matter? It, you know, it to a certain extent, I guess, but. When you get into this, into this world, into this thing where you you certainly have a a measure of power that you didn't have before, and that there's there's a real, you know, there's a real chance at exponential kind of growth, and and um, you know, you can really take that and and turn it into something where where you couldn't in your in your previous situation. Yeah, I mean, it you know the the intention only goes so far because people are just bound to get caught up in that. And that that's really the reason why most of the stuff uh, that, you know, the other people overlook and you can kind of maybe use the example of, of Marie about how, you know, she, she's kind of escalating in her, her thing with like, you, you kind of get the sense in them in the, whenever she gets together with, when Skylar tracks her down after the uh, incident with the tiara, you kind of get the sense that Marie just kind of spends all day going around shoplifting because that's where she gets her, her buzz. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You you definitely do like, so, but it's also with, with Marie. Well, the first time we see her do it is stealing the high heels. Right. And Uh it's almost like she's doing that out to spite the girl for asking her to put on the, the footies and yeah, that's stealing, what I'm saying. And by this yeah. point, she's that's not like that at all anymore. Like she's just rolling around this, you know, like she, right before Skylar arrives in that scene, she picks up some some uh, earrings, yeah, earrings. And you kind of think that 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 those are going to go with her at the end of this if she doesn't get right. I mean, was that the way you looked at it? 
I don't know that she would have stolen those. I mean, I guess it's certainly a, a possibility because the narrative around her, her kleptomania changes a little bit. And we see like later it becomes like a coping mechanism for him, for her when she's like going mm-hmm. to the open houses and stealing like, you know, things that she wouldn't necessarily like need, like, or, or even want, like who cares about a spoon or, or a picture frame? It's yeah. almost like it's, it's, it's a like a compulsive thing right like stealing shoes stealing earrings like you can you can understand why people might want to steal those things because they want them they can't afford them certainly it looks like she can afford whatever she wants but stealing those other things so there's like a change in what she's stealing and right and why she seems to be yeah why she seems to be stealing she she did it for what she thought was a justified reason in the beginning but then it gets away from her at some point yeah yeah so that this is the second instance we've seen after the high heels. And this was a gift, right? She wanted to get something nice for her niece. And I love how that's that's tied back um, the, the question that Walt pitches to Skylar when when he comes back from his, you know, his sweat lodge, a.k.a. like really cooking in the mm-hmm. desert with with Jesse. And she's telling him the story about what happened. And he says, what would you do if it was me? It's almost like he's testing to see um how how would she of course it's not that it seems he is actually testing to see how she might react to to that that situation um what are her thoughts on that and uh he says um sometimes people do things for their their families it's almost like he's starting to to rationalize uh and extend that that rationalization to someone like marie like if it's okay if marie does it it'll be okay if you know i cook meth for my family i, I want to come back to that because there's a couple of other things there, because I think that is the, the, the majority of what's interesting about this episode is the way that that, that all kind of comes together at the end. And there was one thing I wanted to ask about earlier in the, um, before we get there. And um, it's about whenever Walt comes over to the house, the, the, the uh, real estate agent is showing it and she sends him into the, she tells him that Jesse's in the, um, the RV, right? So there's a quick exchange there where he said, you didn't really go to see Tuco, right? And, uh, you know, he can't believe it when he shows him the money. And uh, like, think about that from like, do, do you think Walt considered even briefly the, the effect that like working with Tuco might have on his partner. I mean, he's still there wrapped up like his, his, he had broken ribs. I think skinny Pete said in the last episode, he's still laid up and, and everything else. Like it's pretty, I mean, if you're in a partnership with someone, that's a pretty, that's a pretty crazy thing to do, isn't it? I mean, not consider how he might feel about yeah. that situation. About the guy who put him in the hospital, like working on an ongoing basis with the guy who's working in the hospital. I don't think Walt is really capable of really considering how other people feel at, well, that's at really what I was, any given time. Yeah, I guess that's what I was getting at. Is is that what that is telling us, that he, he's not capable of it or he just overlooked it? Because he needs this thing so much, you know, he needs this money. And he doesn't know any other distributors besides Tuco. Yeah, I think that's probably and, and maybe it's not that he doesn't care about other people's feelings. That's just not like what's at the forefront of his mind. Again, we've been talking a lot about yeah, the, kind of, a, the kind of the kind of thinking that he does. Mm-hmm. And so he thinks in terms of like 
you know, uh, a, more, a more logical, right? Like, I need this. This is a problem that can be solved. But again, like, he, del- it's, it's delusional, right? Like, he, yeah. he sees what would happen, but he thinks somehow it's going to be different when yeah. he when he does this. Like, it's going to be okay because I guess he, he feels like he has the upper hand in this relationship because of what happened with um, the fulminated Mercury. Like, he made his point. Um, he still doesn't seem to, to understand just how dangerous this person is. And I think that speaks more to his naivete than anything than it mm. does like maybe disregarding Jesse's feelings. Like, I think he really thinks he's going to be able to go into this and it's going to be like a perfect, happy transaction. You know, it kind of reminds me of in, in Better Call Saul, um, remember Price, who's yeah. who makes the deals with um, with Nacho and just how completely and utterly naive that dude is uh, uh-huh. going into dealing with the, you know, a member of the cartel. So, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I, like, I, I was just thinking about that when I watched it this time. I was thinking about how, like, just how, how uh, like, that just crosses such a, a huge line as far as partnership, you know? Like, yeah, I know the guy beat you down and, you know, you were almost, uh, you were like basically in a coma for a couple of days, you know, didn't wake up, but, um, I took care of it and don't worry, it's not going to come back. Like, I mean, there's like, there's real trauma involved in that, that beat down. Right. I mean, it's not just a small thing that happened that you can say, yeah, you know, he was in a bad mood that day or something like that. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely real trauma. And this is, uh, you know, certainly a, a precursor of things to come when it comes to Walt and Jesse and how he completely disregards Jesse's feelings about everything. So certainly mm. Jane comes to mind. But there are other, you know, things along the way where he does not take into consideration how things are going to affect him. Um, so another another thing that comes to mind, more serious, right? So certainly Jane. But um, when he instructs him to go and get his money back from Spooch, when he gets robbed by, um, where was it Skinny Pete that gets robbed by Spooch and he wants him to go and collect yeah. the money? So he puts Jesse mm-hmm. on that that business where that's a really traumatic event for Jesse. And then, of course, what happens with Gail as well. Although in that case, that's a little bit different because it was kind of a either kill or be killed situation but yeah he doesn't he does not really seem to to take jesse's feelings into consideration at all yeah and now that tuco has entered entered the situation i mean on one 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 hand that that's a good development for us because it you know they they had plenty of time to um develop these two characters and give us an idea of, of what makes them tick and now they have, you know, the, the there's a definite buildup in the momentum that a character like Tuco brings into the uh, the story. Um, he's not as easy to, you know, like he he's he's a, an immovable force, and they're 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 in bed with him now, and that you know you just can tell even if you don't know what's going to happen, like that this is going to change the the way that that's you know the change the direction of where things are going, right? Um, yeah, yeah, he's completely erratic and, and unpredictable. So again, Walt wants everything to be neat and predictable, but this guy is unstable as it is. And then you give him drugs, and he's even more unstable. And uh, it, uh, it's such a—he's such a great character um, in terms of just like I, I love how Raymond Cruz plays him. He's—he's he's interesting and compelling to watch. Uh, It—you've seen—you've um, seen Goodfellas, haven't you? Yeah. So you remember Joe Pesci when he gets upset when the guy um, 
calls him funny and he's like what am i yeah. a clown am i you know am i here to amuse you and he, uh-huh. he goes off on him that's the kind of energy that that tuco brings to yeah. <laughs> to uh breaking bad he definitely does um so i guess yeah let's let's take a little side side uh trip here because um I don't even know where to start with it though, because there. Okay, so so Raymond Cruz was he was pegged to be the big bad. Um, you know, he was he was there to be this uh, guy that would cause problems for for Walt to be his uh, you know antagonist, I guess. Um, but it, you know, whenever whenever things when that, he was also on another show called The Closer. And um, he had obligations there. So his time on the show ended up getting cut shorter than they would have originally um, done. Um, what do you think about, like, we're, I guess, yeah, let's just get into the whole thing with this uh, writer strike and the way that this, this whole thing sort of changed. Um, all right. So initially when Breaking Bad was, was, bought after they you know they bought the the pilot and they they put it to order for there was it's going to be a nine episode season and then this writer's strike happened and they had to cut it to seven that's why this feels a little bit truncated and and not like a, a true finale because the way that worked i guess is that the you know they had what they had completed and then they had to adapt without the writers being on staff, right? Is that the is that a good estimation of how that played out? I think so. That's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, it's kind of interesting in general. I mean, the the writers' strike. Um, it was the first one that they it, was, it started in two thousand seven. It was the first one they had since the eighties, and back whenever in the nineteen eighties, whenever they did this, and I'm just I'm just sort of uh, just doing this i'm not going to go into to all the details of it just a a general outline of what happened um when they did that back then they were there was a lot of questions about residuals around uh this new thing which was vhs tapes you know video stores which were kind of the precursor to streaming uh, TV, I guess, you know, if you wanted to watch something, you would go to the VHS store or, you know, whatever. And you could, you could rent it on demand that way. And that changed things obviously for how people got paid because they had to produce these, they had to sell them and then they would, you know, they would make the money that way rather than through advertisement on network TV when they showed the shows or whatever and syndication or, or however that happened. So, um, so they they changed things up, and then over that twenty years in between, there, the the price of making those videotapes and stuff went down a lot, and you know they were they they needed to renegotiate the idea of how much of a percentage they should get based on that, you know, the writers, and also streaming was starting to come up, and that was basically the wild west because it wasn't it wasn't stipulated how they would get paid for stuff that they would just show on a subscription service that could, you know, that, that wasn't really giving them information about how many times people were watching it or any of that kind of stuff. So it was something that needed to happen. It was a pretty good, uh, it was, you know, I'm sure for the writers, it was a, it was, it was very good as far as like, you know, making sure that they were getting, 
as fair a deal as possible. But yeah, so we got this, we got this short season and, um, we do know from interviews and things like what they would have done instead because they did actually write nine episodes, right? And it was ready to go. And so we know that Tuco was going to come in and he was going to really kind of cause some problems by the end of the first season. Like there were two different, um, there were two different scenarios that they had that they were working with going into the finale that that both got cut and um, and one, one was of the to kill Jesse and the other was was it Steve Gomez is that right? Well, the Jesse thing got they changed the Jesse thing much earlier. Um, that was like they, they, yeah three or four right? They decided they needed he, to keep them. <laughs> Yeah, like the the thing with Jesse, and that that's something that you hear that the the writer strike saved Jesse, but that's not really that's not really true. That's kind of uh, just sort of the way the story got passed down, according to what Vince Gilligan said after the series was complete. Um, when he wrote the pilot, he had the idea that he was going to to kill Jesse, but then you know that's the only thing they filmed, and then they you know they had to shop it around. It got bought, but by the time they got into the writers' room they already kind of had a sense that that they wanted to keep Aaron Paul around. And when they started to break the other episodes, they realized that that would be really effective to have these two characters that you could sort of have parallel each other. Whereas Jesse's original, the reason originally that he put him in the pilot was to get him an introduction into the criminal underworld, which he had already served that purpose by, you know, the end there. So, so yeah, that, that saved him. But the two ideas they had going into the finale, and, and we touched on this in an earlier episode. So sorry about that, but it, it's kind of relevant here. And um, so the, the, what they said was that Gomez was going to get shot. You know, Tuco was going to shoot Steve Gomez, Hank's partner, and Walt was going to come up and he was going to, he wouldn't know what to do, but Gomez would see him, you know, and he would get covered with his blood and he would basically, basically season two would have like, you would have the cliffhanger at the end of the season where you don't know if he's going to live. And if he does live, then what he's going to do, because he's identified that Walt is connected to Tuco in some way, which is a big problem. Right. And so, Season one was going to end with him going down a an alley covered in blood, running, the, you know, with Gomez's blood and sirens going off. And you're thinking, oh, how's he going to get out of this? So that was the one. And then the other one was that Tuco was going to break into their house, like a home invasion to steal their money, uh, steal Walt's drug money. And um, <laughs> Skyler and Walt Jr. were going to be there. They were going to be like duct taped and waiting for, for Walt to come home. And, and, you know, Tuco would be saying like, you know, give me the money or I'm going to kill your family or whatever. And Skylar would be like, this is crazy. You have no idea. Well, like, what are you doing here? You know, like we're, my husband doesn't know what you're talking about or whatever. And then he would have to go get the money and it would come out in front of his family that like what he was doing. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very, both of those have very different implications on what the series would be afterwards. Yeah, it definitely would. And it's it's fun to like as like a thought experiment to think of like how the series would have gone had they gone that way. I'm sure that they would have made it work, but it's I'm so glad it didn't it didn't work out that way. Um, Because I I just love how the the story does go. Yeah, I mean, because if you think about it, the two the two those two options, it's either one that 
an active DEA agent knows that that Walt's involved with Tuco, or two that his family know that he's some kind of drug kingpin that has a bunch of money that this guy just came into their house and stole. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, I think that they've all been the writers and, and the creators have all been pretty, have said it more than once, you know, they thought that this gave them a chance to slow down and it really, mm-hmm. it really made the story. Cause you know, the, the, I guess the thinking going into it was, is like, you know, well, this is our first season. We don't know if we're going to get another one. So we just have to throw everything at this finale yeah. and make it as crazy as possible. And so it just didn't get to happen that way because it just, I mean, they literally wrote these you know, ideas out and, and shot, you got it ready to go. But then the season got cut short and they just had to end it here based on necessity. So it's pretty wild when you think about it like that. Yeah, it but is. I, it, I, it probably I, I, I was going to say it probably would have been a much shorter show had they gone the way that they had intended to. I was just thinking about the pacing and some of the other episodes as well. So, um, and this is, you know, probably most people out there have heard this story because it's one of the more well-known, I think, stories about Breaking Bad um, because it's something that gets talked about a lot, both by Brian Cranston and Vince Gilligan. But the scene where he watches Jane die was originally written so that, like, he he pushed her uh, on her back or, like, they even had, I think, um, they, they had floated the idea that he gave her the hot shot. Um, but they, they, I think it was the executives actually that came back and they're like, are you sure you want him to go this far this soon? Cause, uh, he was more involved in actively pushing her over and, and her dying mm. as opposed to what they ended up doing where it was like an accident that he's shaking Jesse and he bumps into her and she rolls over on her back. Um, and you know, uh, that's something that Vince has, has talked about how grateful he is that they they slowed things down a little bit um instead of taking it to to those extremes so it is interesting to think like had his family known this early or had um you know DEA agents known this early like what how would that have ex- expedited the the character arc and the story um in in terms of yeah, because- like development of of this character into what he devolves into yeah, it's a great point because, like you said, I, I I've heard that same story about the the note and the idea that maybe you know they needed to to make that a little, that the whole Jane situation a little more up to interpretation because that way, you know, people wouldn't turn on Walt. I mean, if Gomez knew, and and that's where they were starting from there, then we're gonna have to see them take care of 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 Gomi, and mm-hmm. that that really is gonna change. The way a lot of people view Walt, I think um, it would be a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot harder to, uh, you know, stay behind him and say like, okay, well, I can. It's harder harder to explain away than a lot of the other stuff that actually happens in the series, right? Yeah, well, certainly, certainly at this point too, right? Because it would then become a problem that needs to be solved to to further, you know, protect him himself. Um, right. Where it's like one thing to kill Crazy Eight, which we talked a lot about, like you know, like that 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 was premeditated murder, right? So there is a shift there from killing Emilio, which was self defense, mm-hmm. to intentionally killing Crazy Eight again for his own self interest. Um, and you can argue, you can look at, at the the morals of that decision. Uh, in, in finer detail, but to kill a DEA agent is like a completely different animal, right? Yeah, that's that's what. Yeah, that was my point. Um, 
So yeah, I mean that, that that's all pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, glad it worked out the way it did. I I don't know. I guess the whole reason I brought this up was I was wondering what you thought about Tuco. I you know about his his stay being short. Um, how you think about that? I mean, obviously that gives rise to 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 Gus eventually. You know, they had to replace him, which is obviously. Uh, in my opinion, anyways, a, an upgrade. You know, Tuca's great for what he is, but uh, I'm not sure if I want to watch four seasons of that. Do you want to watch four seasons of that? Again, Tuco it's one of those Tuco? things. It's one of those things that's hard to say. I'm glad that it worked out the way it did because I mean, we got to meet Gus and we got to see Gus, and I think of all these like these sort of uh, these these what things ifs. that happened. Yeah, these what ifs, but also like the things that that happened that led to the creation of new characters. So like, for example, um, uh, Bob Odenkirk not being available to mm-hmm. shoot that. Mike, we've been talking mm-hmm. about, yeah, the Jesse and Jane scene. Um, he wasn't available to to shoot that. So they had to invent Mike to come mm-hmm. in and, and be the cleaner for that. And I think in, in Better Call Saul, they had something similar with, with um, Raymond Cruz, where like he didn't want to continue. I think his wife didn't want him to keep playing the character. It was just like a hard character for him to play um, mm-hmm. when, he, when he reprises his role as, as Tuco on, on that show. So that also changed what they had to, to do in terms of, of writing. So they'd already mentioned the name Lalo, but his you know being mm-hmm. out of the picture, getting arrested, allowed for Lalo to come in to... Um, I guess, uh, yeah, take over the the Salamanca family uh, business. And again, a little behind-the-scenes story there is that uh, Vince Gilligan didn't think they needed to write Lalo. And he was like, whatever, it's just a throwaway line that we we wrote in Breaking Bad, you know, when they first kidnap him and they have him on, uh, I'm talking about Saul, they have Saul on his knees in the desert uh, when when Walt and Jesse kidnap him. He's like, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was was Ignacio. And Lalo didn't send you, right? So uh, I love that Peter Gould insisted that they do bring in Lalo. So, I mean, they probably would have brought him in anyway, but but, uh, Raymond Cruz stepping out of Better Call Saul allowed for Lalo to come in. And if you haven't seen Lalo and Better Call Saul, please go watch it. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I think like, the, I think both of those, uh, and I guess it just all is to credit the, um, the crew and everyone involved in the writer's room and everything else. So uh, being able to adapt to the situations and make the best out of it. Um, you know, I'm sure that you have those ideas and they sound incredible and you're ready to go and then it gets changed and you have to come up with something that is, uh, you know, that works for what you have. Like, I, I feel like, you know, the Tuco is a great character and like you said, the performance is, is, is great. But um, I think, I think it kind of would have been a different show if there's a lot of, you know, if it turned out that it was, if it was, was just Walt versus Tuco for, for an extended period of time. I, I kind of like how he kind of burns bright and, and is gone before, before too long. It's almost like playing a video game. Like he levels up, like he kills like the verse, the, like the first villain. <laughs> he has to go beat like the next boss. Right. Yeah. So they get progressed. The levels get progressively harder. Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty literally that when you think about it, <laughs> except maybe, except maybe Jack isn't, isn't a, a, a level up from, from Gus necessarily, but you know. No, definitely not. You're listening to Growth Decay Transformation and we'll be right back. 
we're getting geared up for the 6th annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. We're about 10 weeks out from House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of Hot D and reading a lot of Fire and Blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's historical tome, Fire and Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into Season 2. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then. Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's time for another season of Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? The premise is simple. A Gen Xer and a millennial watch old 80s action TV to see what still works and what doesn't. In previous seasons, we've done podcasts for Knight Rider, Airwolf, MacGyver, A-Team, and more. However, this year we're doing a very special season of Feeney. We're going back and reviewing the very special episodes of 80s and 90s sitcoms. Come cringe along with us as Hollywood tries to warn our families of the dangers of underage smoking, drug abuse, alcoholism, eating disorders, and much more. We start out with the episode of Boy Meets World where a high school kid gets sucked into a cult. Worlds collide as THE Mr. Feeney finally makes an appearance on Why Is Mr. Feeney a Car? Join me and my buddy Jay each week for episodes full of nostalgia and secondhand embarrassment. And don't worry, if very special isn't your speed, we've also got some all-time classic Knight Rider episodes to close the season with. 
Find Why Is Mr. Feeney a Car each Wednesday on Bald Move Pulp starting April 3rd. Let's get cooking. We're back with more growth decay transformation. Talking about Tuco, you know, the, I think one of the, I think there were two scenes in this that that really, kind of, uh, that were kind of like notes on the character. You know, like the like where you really see things of the character that are brought out. You know, and and I think the first one is whenever we see him. Um, at the at the at the baby shower he there you know junior's got the camcorder marie's got him doing all this stuff and um walt walks by and and he he you know he's it's kind of a great it's set up perfectly because you're you're watching it through the lens of the the camcorder so you see this you know this uh this that weird um kind of image that comes from that you see him kind of get caught by surprise because he's in this uncomfortable situation with all these people inside his house and, and then, you know, for this party for his wife. And uh, you get a really, a really kind of um, Walt being what, what his, what he imagines is his best self in that, in that moment there. Right. Um, he talks about how he, you know, he, um, he thinks about her all the time and he's proud of her and, you know, it's moving. And then, you know, the, the thing that really drives it is the fact that we know that he knows that he won't be around by the time that she sees the videotape. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the, 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 maybe the bigger idea of, of recordings as artifacts in this series. So we see a couple, they use recordings like videotape in a really mm-hmm. interesting way, I think, throughout. So we see in the very in the very first episode in the pilot when he turns the Jesse's camera around to record himself and he leaves this like farewell message to his family because he thinks he's about to get caught or he's about to kill himself. I think that was his intention. He puts the gun to his head. Um, and then uh, this here too, again, it's, it's a message that he's leaving behind for his daughter right with the expectation that he's not going to be able to see her grow up right and i at this moment i think um is a nice little companion moment to that earlier scene that we saw in one of the the earlier episodes when before skylar and the family knows that he has cancer they're at the ultrasound um place and uh you yeah. know, and, yeah, and she's like, remember that. Hand. Yeah. Remember when, remember you said that when she turns 16, right. And that sort mm-hmm. of really morose look on his face. So yeah, I still, I still think at, at this point, he's still kind of expecting to die. And I think he's, as I've already made this point, I think has resigned himself to this idea. So he's just going to throw all caution to the wind and, and do what he has to do to be able to leave something behind for his family. Um, so this is a, I think a, a, this little moment that he records for for posterity for his child, is is interesting. It's an interesting look into to Walt's mind, and then just a couple of the other examples of where we see him on film, of course, is uh, having to um, figure out how to destroy the footage from within the lab. Um, you know, after uh, Gus is taken care of, and they want to make uh-huh. sure that they destroy that, and then also the recording that he and Skylar make to try to blackmail. Hank at the end where Walt's com- Walt's confession right about uh-huh. how he was forced into doing it 
uh, that's I'm sorry to, to to derail the conversation, but you got me thinking about yeah f- film and recording as artifact in the series. Yeah, and then one of the one of the stuff. the funnier scenes in this episode becomes a pretty good uh, videotape in the in the next episode too. The uh, methylamine uh, the methylamine uh, heist there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's in Definitely. the next. I, I I haven't I haven't watched ahead since we started doing this, but uh, I think. I remember there was a point where Hank and is watching the tape and they're, they're talking about them and it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Talking about how stupid they are. Cause it rolls. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Which is exactly what I was thinking about whenever I watched this, you know, I was like, why are they carrying it? They could just roll it. Yep. But yeah. So the other thing with the other place, I think where we just really quickly though, I guess that that's connected. We, there's another connection to this idea of him thinking about the future whenever Jesse says, how long is that? When they're talking about the money uh, at once, once they get the cook going and um, you know, he's just sort of saying like, you know, you're dying. So how much longer are we going to be making this, this weekly money or something like that? But yeah, the other moment I think, which is a big one character wise is that the one, whenever he, he, he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the goods. He doesn't ha- he only has a half pound when he's supposed to have two. Uh, and he, Tuco is, is, you know, understandably upset with him for that. And he, he tells him he wants the money anyways. And mm-hmm. it's one of those moments where you're like, why did you do that? Like nobody can understand, <laughs> like nobody watching, especially Jesse, he's kind of the, the, our, our stand in there in, inside the scene to say like, why would you do that? Why would anyone do this? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, this is we we saw this in the last episode with Jesse as as well, um, with just uh, like when when they're having that conversation about trying to find a, a distributor, and um, just like Walt just not understanding at all how it works, and uh, and making these promises that at at the time Jesse hasn't figured out like how they're going to be able to do this because they've been using pseudo, but of course Walt always has answers, doesn't he? So mm-hmm. he sort of clumsily fumbles his way through things, and and he has a, a, an incredible amount of luck, right? Yeah. Um, and really, it I guess it is his his um his his ability, his science, right? His his intellect that ultimately always pulls them out of the fire. Yeah. So the, you know, so I, I, I think that, that that was one of the, when I watched it the first time and when I rewatch it every time, I think that's one of those moments where the character does something. It makes sense, um, you know, based on a situation or whatever, but it really, it's really kind of like, wow, why did he do that? Why would he, he, this guy's obviously dangerous. This this is obviously something he couldn't do last time. Why would he up the ante? Why would he put him and, you know, essentially his family at risk um, by making, you know, taking that money at that moment. But well, it also worked. He's also a man. I mean, if he thinks he's going to die, he feels like he's got nothing left to lose. And he's writing this like high right now where he feels like he's getting away with everything. He, you know, is outsmarting everyone. He's outsmarting his brother-in-law who's always sort of looked down on him. Um, he's outsmarting the school, the, you know, the the police, the DEA. He outsmarted Tuco, right? Like, so he's he's really feeling himself at, at, 
at the moment. And yeah. of course, that's, I mean, that's like the biggest problem with Walt. And that's what is, you know, undoing is, is this out of control ego. And uh, so, it, I mean, we're starting to, to see that develop here, I think. Yeah, um, and that's kind of where I was going because I think you really, I, I, I one one scene that I didn't really remember standing out as much as it did, you know, when I watched it this time was when he comes home from from the cook and and she's there and they talk about it. It's uh, I'll, I'll I'll bring this back up in a, in a bit, but like the, you know, the whole thing is that yes, that's what they're saying is that that Walt is getting away with it. And it's starting to, you know, it's starting to feel like that's what's supposed to happen. Like when he's at home there, that's that's the sort of the, the idea that I got from that was that like, you know, it, yeah, there's, there were some big problems and but they solved them all, you know, and most of it came through his his expertise and, you know, his chemistry background. And so he is kind of settling into the, at the end of this first season, that's sort of where the character's at is that he's settling into this idea that, yeah, you know what, I can do this. I can pull it off. Um, nothing can stop me from making this happen. Yeah. I mean, there've been, there've been several close calls and yes, his, his, he's been able to, to think his way out of some of these problems, but I'm also thinking of like when Skylar almost catches Jesse moving the body, right? So there, there have been a couple of really, really close calls and he keeps just getting away with things. And, and maybe he thinks of his luck as, as shifting as well. And who, who cares at this point? Maybe. Yeah. So so a, a big a big uh, shift in in the production, um, switching over to using the methylamine. Um, is there anything that we want to say about this other than it's it's a funny uh, funny situation that they have go down when they go to steal this? You want to add anything extra about that? No, I th- I think what the you you mentioned this in when you were talking about your impressions, Pete, but I think. This uh, those those things about the methylamine, him having his pork pie hat, um, the sunglasses, uh, the meth being blue, it all those elements I think help this feel more like a season finale because these are all like such important elements of the show going forward, defining characteristics mm-hmm. going forward, um, and just that scene when they're stealing the methylamine, it, it's comedic. For all the reasons you already said, right? Like we watch them stealing it, wearing their their stupid ski masks, and you know one of the the funny things about it, like Jesse's like, you know, why would you get these? Like, you know, go to a different store if these yeah, are all I they have that. the little pom pom on top. But I love that later they use the same ski masks when they kidnap yeah. Saul. So, <laughs> you know, like I guess Jesse wasn't that bothered by them. Yeah, um, that, but that, it just adds a, a degree of comedy to it. Yeah, I love that. He says, "If you're, if if you, if they, if this is all they had at that store, you're in the wrong place, or whatever." Yeah, <laughs> I, I really yeah, go like somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and you know the blue stuff being there, the 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 way that he was able to pull off. Uh, you know, I like the way that this is. They they introduce it, but they don't really make a big deal about it. You know, it's just sort of like, yeah, it's blue, but whatever. Um, that that turns out to be like his his trademark um yeah. the the thing that 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 sets his his dope apart from everybody else's classic coke uh, as he calls it yeah um and then uh you know we kind of already touched on the idea of 
him choosing the the junkyard and that being kind of funny and um kind of the you know the iconic shot of him twirling the hat as he puts it on for the first time it's also kind of subtle you know it's just thrown in there uh they don't make a big deal about it funny you know the the hat you know like i don't know if we want to talk about the hat too much but one of the things about the hat is that it's supposed to be like you know i guess let me see what you think about this like when you see it he puts on the sunglasses and he puts on the hat and it's supposed to make him look incognito you think that's what he's he's saying you know what i mean like whenever he bought the hat like i need something that'll that'll you know my bald head won't stand out or something like that that's a good question i don't know but i guess what stood out to me in that scene is how both he and jesse are wearing their their sunglasses and um I mean, it, you could just be like, it's a sunny day. They wanted protection. But I think that's the part where they're trying to disguise themselves a little bit because Jesse's scared out of his mind, right? About to, to come face to face with with Tuco. And I think Walt also um, feels maybe a little bit safer hidden behind his glasses. So yeah, I mean, maybe that's that's part of it. I think it's well, I more... Just, I- I just think like the hat is not exactly incognito at all. Like it stands out. No. It's like if, if if you think about the history of TV and the way like everybody remembers that as the Heisenberg hat now, like it's iconic. Yeah. And uh, I just think it's kind of funny that it seems like he was like, I just need a hat, you know, and something that will, you know, kind of make me uh, forgettable. You know, people won't pay attention because they won't see the bald head. And actually it, it kind of does the opposite, doesn't it? Well, I don't. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I see the glasses as maybe them trying to, you know, shield themselves a little bit. But I don't I didn't think get that impression from him that he was using the hat as a disguise. I think he's using Mm -hmm. the hat as a costume and he's using that as almost like as a as a as a object of power or like a talisman. Because, again, this is something that these writers really love to do. We see this in Better Call Saul also with. Jimmy's uh, Marco ring and Kim's mm. um, the the stopper from the Sephiro and Yeho. Yeah. So these these ideas of objects bestowing some sort of power. It's a type of costume, right? Like so they they hold these objects, wear these objects, interact with these objects, and uh, it's it's a way of like tapping into something else to like this other identity that that they have, and that's something that's again uh, similar between all three of the characters I just mentioned. They have um, this duality. You have uh, Walt Heisenberg, Jimmy Saul, Kim Giselle. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's like how they're able to like a, a physical thing that they can touch, almost like a, a magic thing that helps them get into that character. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever had a pork pie? Uh, no. The food, not the hat. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. Of course, you've never had the hat because nobody wears the hats except for Walter White. But um. Yeah, that, I did do a bit of a, a deep dive into the, the actual pies, and they don't sound all that appetizing, if I'm being honest. Um, Just even the name pork pie doesn't sound good. No, it, it's not It's not the catchiest name. I mean, you don't forget it. You, you hear it, and you don't forget it, but it doesn't make you think, oh, that sounds delicious. You know, that sounds so fun. Yeah, it sounds like something you would get at Mrs. Lovett's Pie Shop uh, from Sweeney Todd. Yeah, Anyone gets the reference. Uh huh. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. I mean, I don't know what else we need to to get into here about the episode proper. Well, there was one to... other thing that that did stand out to me. I don't, Go ahead. Um, and I'd never noticed this before 
watching it for for the podcast. And it's a, I don't know if you would call it like a, it's not a continuity error, but it's it's just something that I was like, wait a minute. So Jesse's trying to sell his house. And yeah. we, know, we learned from the beginning when, when Walt goes to see him and finds him in the RV and he says, you know, I had two dudes turned into like raspberry slush and flushed down my toilet. You know, I can't live in there. I can't take a proper dump in the place is, is what he says, is his reasoning. Uh-huh. So you get the idea that Jesse is the one who has put the house up for sale. And then he calls it off, you know, when they're down in the basement yeah. cooking. Oh, and that was another see, line. You aren't going to see the, the basement, babe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's just like brief. Let me just briefly mention this as well. So like at the very beginning of the episode, when we see the real estate agent taking that couple down into the basement and she's like, just imagine all the things you could do down there. And of course, the subtext uh-huh. is we watch someone be killed. And then later in that episode, we're going to watch them make meth. Right. So, yeah, yeah, imagine all the all the horrible, criminal, awful things that you can do in your basement um, or you can turn it into a rec room. But um, going back to what I was what I was talking about um, with with Jesse, so you get this idea that Jesse's the one that has put the house up for sale. But then later in the series, we learned that actually he, it's not his house at all. It's it's it was his aunt's house, right? But she passed mm-hmm. away, and then I don't know if she left it to his mother or she didn't have a will and it just went to his mother because Jesse seems to have like an idea that it should have gone to him that she said it was going to go to him, but legally. His parents own it, right? And went to his mm-hmm. mother. And that's how she's able to evict him and then try to sell the house. She puts it up on the market. So as I was watching this, I was like, how is he able to do this? Like, how is he able to actually get a, you know, get this house on the market? Like, wouldn't, a, wouldn't any realtor look into, make make sure everything is above yeah. board, that they have like all the proper documentation? I don't think it really makes sense. You brought this up yesterday when we were talking. And, and I, I, yeah. I, I don't think it, it actually makes sense for the overall story. But I, I don't, I guess, yeah, the, it doesn't really jump out at you unless you're doing what we're doing right now, though. I mean, it's not like, uh, it, like you said, it's not really a continuity error. It's not that important, I guess, in the overall scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're going to believe that fulminated mercury can blast out a right. wall, you know, there's some suspension mm-hmm. of disbelief. And I guess, like, this is one of those things that you just look over Um I, it's not important, but it was just something that that never occurred to me before. I was like, "Wait a minute, could he do that?" It is so. another thing that you had mentioned. It, it, it is interesting that they do kind of, you know, in a roundabout way, um, they 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 say that they that they did. I mean, we kind of knew it already, but they, it, it kind of confirms the fact that they um, disincorporated uh, Crazy Eight's body also. You know, because it yeah. said they flushed them both down the toilet. You never see that on screen, but that's what they did with his body. Um, or at and, least what yeah, Walt did, because when Jesse comes home um, it's after he done. took off. Right. Yeah, it's already yeah. done. He's already gone. So that's something Walt took care of all on his own. Okay, well, I, I think it's it's that time of the episode to talk about our favorite lines and our favorite shots. So, Pete, what was, what was your favorite uh, uh, line from this one? I mean, there's so many of them, it's really hard and you could probably, you know, pick out a handful of them instead of just one. But I, I settled on, this is like a non-criminal's idea of a drug meet. And um, I don't know, I just thought this is so, this is so effective. It's like one of those things where if you were watching this episode and, and, and they never brought it up, this, this, this meeting at this place, you know, this, uh, this crazy junkyard, it would have felt 
fine, right? It would have been like, yeah, that's what you do. You go to crazy out of the way places that where there's privacy and when you you know when you're handing back and forth these giant bags of of drugs and money or whatever you know but it, so yeah so i thought this was super effective in the way that it points out how absurd that is like how there's actually a much better place um you know something that's out in public where uh you know nothing weird can happen because there's too many people around or whatever um it just seemed like a real, a, a really, a really smart choice to to not only have it in that place, but then also call it out and use that as a way to show just how inexperienced and how um, you know clueless in a way that Walt is. Yeah. My uh, my favorite line from this one, as you said, there's so many great ones, and there's so many quotable ones. Like when people quote yeah. the show, or they make like memes or or gifs of the show. There are a couple that they use. Um, so I was, uh, I wanted to do something with like one of the, the more fun lines. I had a couple of, uh, of choices, of course, like Tuco going tight, 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 even popcorners during the Super Bowl, like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> took that line. Um, but I had to go with Yes, yeah, Science from Jesse. Mm-hmm. And uh, just because I love that that moment so much. And uh, as far as, uh, as favorite shot goes, what was your pick? Um, you know, I was, I was going to use the one where Walt puts the hat on for the first time. Um, the way that he twirls it there, because I I think it's kind of interesting to think about him practicing that twirl in, in, you know, his room by himself when no one's around. (laughs) Um, but, and it's one of those things that's like, it's a great shot because it's, again, it's, it's somewhat restrained. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make a big deal about it. There's not a big, um, uh, you know, like a big, you know, something going on with the score or anything else. It's just sort of like a thing that happens, but it, it's such an important part of the, the visual language of the show and, and kind of the, you know, the, his, the way that it, it fits into the, the overall history of TV kind of thing. But I, I, I landed on Skyler handing Walt the orange juice in that, that scene when he comes home from the sweat lodge. And I thought that it was, um, I thought it was one of those those shots like you're 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 watching you know the focus is on on Walt in the beginning so you're thinking about where he's at like what his headspace is and um and then you know they show the they show the the orange juice come in and uh the way that he you know he he touches her hand like it's it's all it's all purely visual like the you know it, it it's a natural progression of like you're wondering what he's thinking and then you see her come in and, and you don't see her you just see her hand and you see the way that he he interacts with her hand and um i just thought that that was like a, a super cool little little shot that that sets up one of the you know one of the um the final like really nice kind of um domestic yeah. situations that they have you know it is and and i mean that the episode really i mean certainly we see the the intimacy of them in the beginning and then that's more more raw more more animalistic yeah. if you will and then this is uh-huh. a much tender um gesture and to your point yeah it's like one of those one of the final moments we're going to see of 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 this couple really being a couple and, and really being happy. And yeah, there's not a lot going on. Like it's yeah. not, it's not like something that like, you know, overwhelms you, but it, it says so much and it, and some of it, you don't really, 
put together until later on, you know, like whenever you realize like just how bad things are going to get for them. So yeah, it's a, it's a really nice note for the, for the, for them, like, you know, like a emotional note for that, for the relationship, I guess. Yeah. It's a high, it's a height note for, for Waltz and every, every regard up till really the end, like everything is starting mm-hmm. to go his way. It's starting to fall in place. Um, things are good on, on the home front. He's made this deal with Tuco, so he's looking at all this money coming in. But as um, as the title of the episode lets us know, if if you caught the reference while you like before you watched the episode, you know it's not going to you know end the way that he expects it to. There's going to be consequences. There will be violence. Um, yeah. So yeah. So my, what about my, you? What was your what was your favorite shot? My pick for this one is uh, after they steal the methylamine, and then um, you get that shot of the porta potties. You have the two porta potties there, and the little golf cart, and the poor security guard is locked inside. They have tied it off, and then mm-hmm. they come waddling into frame, wearing their ski masks, holding this very heavy barrel of methylamine. So just a little bit of a comedy there. Um, I love that scene. And as you noted, it's a scene we'll see again on security cam in a, in a future episode. Yeah, yeah, it is good. It 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 it's one of those things that um, I think like it feels like this stuff all happens later in the series. In some ways, you know, this it feels like uh, it, it felt a little bit surprising that whenever I thought about the structure of the first season that we that we're, we're at this point already, you know, like where they're already into the P2P cook. But, um, I feel, I think it's pretty natural, you know, it all happens pretty natural inside the, of what we watched unfold because, you know, we did just get to the first, uh, you know, the end of the first season, which is, it was just pretty exciting. I mean, is there anything that, um, you want to, before we, before we go, is there anything you want to get into about this experience of going through the, the entire season? Well, I, I think I already mentioned this earlier, you know, watching it this closely and really taking time to digest what we're watching and thinking about it and in terms of where we know it's going and in the larger story of this whole universe that also includes El Camino and Better Call Saul, I certainly felt differently about the characters. I still very much enjoyed the ride, but mm-hmm. um, not as much as I think the first few times, like the first first few go throughs right like it's still a great show i still love it and everything but i'm i'm being more critical of it and perhaps that's like a natural reaction to it like i'm really trying to delve into these characters psyches and and look at at what's making them them tick and everything so it's it's a different experience but um i think that again like i'm surprised at, at how much they're able to accomplish in just seven episodes but as uh you talk about in that great video you made about why the pilot still rules which you can go watch on youtube and you should if you haven't seen it um you talk about how like just even the, that first episode the pilot how it is like a, a, a mini movie unto itself so that is one of the I think that the real talents of the writers of this show is how much story they're able to to tell in a finite amount of time. And, you know, not a second is wasted. Every second that of storytelling counts and means something. Except for maybe the fly episode, which I like, but we'll, we'll argue about that later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it, to what you were saying about the way you feel about it, um, I, I I don't know. I I think maybe the last time I rewatched it, I, I already experienced that that different 
the different looking at especially like Walt's decisions in a different light. So mm -hmm. it it's not that that isn't really necessarily jumping out to me as much. It's just I think that some of the some of the way that they crafted some of this stuff that I, I guess I maybe I'm just seeing some more of it at this point that I that I didn't that didn't jump out to me the last time um, is uh, it, it's you know that's I, I I don't know how many times I've watched individual episodes you know I I can kind of figure out how many times I went through the whole thing but like it's still for me it still holds up pretty pretty. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm experiencing it in a different way each time. And, and that's a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Like it, it, there's, it's, it's like peeling layers off the onion or something like that. Yeah. Agreed. And I guess one other thing that that's different is, um, having just come off of Saul, I'm seeing a lot more of like, like connections between them and parallels between them as well. So one thing that, for example, just briefly that stood out to me in, in this episode when Walt and Jesse are talking about how much more, you know, meth they have to make, how much more money he needs to make. He doesn't have a figure in this one. We'll see that in the next season, you know, $737,000, whatever it is, the, the figure is. But here he just says more, right? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about um, how much the delivery of that line, the way it's, uh, he, he, well, yeah, the way he delivers it reminds me of a moment in Better Call Saul when Kim goes to interview with uh, Schweikart and Coakley, and yeah, she's rich. telling the story. Yeah, she's telling the story of how she left her little town in Nebraska, and um, that she wanted that she. Well, I forget how they phrased it, but they asked her what she wanted, and she just said more. And the the yeah. delivery is is so similar. And I was thinking between these two characters. Um, more is never enough, is it? And uh, we, we see that they're very different. I don't mean to compare Kim and Walt, although that could be a different conversation, right? Because mm -hmm. there's there's some similarities and also certainly with Jimmy and or slash Saul Goodman. But this idea of like not being satisfied and wanting more and taking things too far, I think is something that that both shows explore. And so I don't know about you, but as I'm, I'm watching this, I keep making these connections. I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this or this reminds me of that. I'm, I'm making a lot more intertextual references between the two series going back through it, which is natural, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I it does. That was one of the things that we were curious about going in. And I will say that for sure it does. I mean, it's going to be even more obviously later when we start to see the Saul Goodman character and we see some of that stuff, but um, it, it, yeah, it's already been a big, a big difference as far as, as how I think about the series as a whole and as now part of a bigger, you know, both of those two things together as a bigger universe. So it's, it's really cool. I'm really enjoying it. I'm having a lot of fun talking to you, talking about it with you. Um, I'm glad we decided to do this. Uh, I'm glad people are starting to listen. If out there, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, you should please follow our podcast and you know set up notifications so you know when the new episodes come out. And it would be great if you could rate and review us wherever you listen because, you know, that makes other people maybe get to see it or listen to it. And um, that's all a big help. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and those who wish to support Growth Decay Transformation may do so by uh, joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash growth decay transformation. And I just wanted to give a quick little shout out to our newest patrons, um, Yazine and Crony24. Thank you so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, we encourage anyone else who would like to uh, to support to to look into that, to join our Patreon. Um, some, some perks there for you, like early uh, access to some episodes and some other things maybe in the future. You can uh, connect with us on Twitter at BreakingBadGDT and write to us at BreakingBadGDT at gmail.com. Thank you to all of you who have uh, written to us and shared your thoughts and comments and suggestions. And to those of you who have left reviews on things like iTunes and and Spotify, we really, really appreciate it. And as always, uh, you can find our producer Talitha's Instagram at Talitha Makes Things. Thank you, Talitha. You are a great editor. And thank you all so much for listening. And we'll catch up with you for uh, the season two premiere. See ya.